I love hearing stories about people's lives where faith in Jesus makes all the difference. Because that's so true. Regardless of what happens to you, it doesn't matter the context that your life finds itself in or the situation you are facing. Faith in Jesus brings clarity. Faith in Jesus gives you a context and a foundation by which not only to survive, but to put the pieces together in a way that is redemptive and purposeful. I love to hear those stories. And today, we're going to talk about those first steps, those very first key steps that either you need to take or maybe you've already taken them, but you need to come back to them and see them again, maybe in a new light, in a different way. I'm excited about what we're going to talk about in the next few minutes. So let me begin by telling you something happened to me a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago, my wife Donna and I had the great privilege of going on a mission trip to Scotland. Now, and I know when I say that, immediately you're going, Scotland, mission trip? And I like, like saying I'm going on a mission trip to Hawaii, right? No, 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 no. Uh, it was extremely eye-opening what we were able to experience there, and I believe we're going to have some great opportunities for our church in the future, and we'll say more about that later. But a lot of people don't know this, but only 3% of the population the country of Scotland attend church. 3%. Only 1% of the population of the country of Scotland claim to be Christians the way many of you would consider yourself Christian. 1%. Now we're talking about a country that helped bring the message of Jesus Christ to us hundreds of years ago. It was once called the land of the book, referring to the Bible. It was so entrenched in Christianity. And now they're way past that. One morning, Donna and I got up towards the end of the week. We got up early. Uh, we had some meetings that we had to go to and some things that uh, on the schedule that with a, a local church there that we were working with. But we got up earlier that morning and decided to go see the Edinburgh Castle. Uh, here's a picture of it. Uh, and this is at the top of the city. You can see this from just about any place. Isn't this amazing? It was built in like 1100, 1200 time period and added on, you know, little pieces here and there. But all, I mean, it's just fascinating. We were walking around in the courtyard. It's funny, something that happened. Uh, we were walking around in the courtyard of the castle, and Donna stopped me, and she said, look at that. You're not going to believe that. And she pointed to a wall on the outside of the chapel in the courtyard, and here's a picture of the wall. I want you to look down to the bottom of the wall in the center. Let's blow it up. That's our logo. That's the Summit Church's logo. They completely ripped us off <laughs> a thousand years ago, right? You're like, oh, man, I'm thinking we got some royalties to pay. Get it? Royalties, castle? No, nah, maybe not. No, it's all legal. It's all good, you know. Anything's a thousand years old. It's kind of public domain now, right? It's a Celtic cross. I, I love it. But Scotland is post Christian. It's very important. Post-Christian. Now, I know there's some people that call America a Christian nation. Even though we may have been founded by Christians and on Christian principles, we are not a Christian nation anymore. And, and if you think we are, you need to wake up and 
see reality. But, but we still are at least sympathetic in most places to Christianity. See, they're way past that. Way, way, way past it. You can kind of see a little bit on the West Coast, maybe in the Northeast, maybe not so much here in the Southeast and what they call the Bible Belt where there's a church on every corner and, you know, well, I want to go to church and my grandma and my great-grandma and, we, you know, we're... Okay, yeah, they're way past all that. What's interesting about being post-Christian is they're not anti-Christian. See, that's what you get in some places of America. They're, you know, well, we don't want to hear about your Jesus. No, 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 no. In, in Scotland, they're not anti. They're just not. They're just nothing. And they're open and they're interested. See, 100 years ago, 150, 200 years ago after the Enlightenment, they were anti-Christian. But they've got several generations that have come and gone now where there is nothing. Nobody really knows anything. It's a fascinating opportunity that is there. And the reason I bring that up is because that's where America's headed. Europe kind of outpaces America in a lot of things. You know, what you see and happening in Europe now, eventually, you know, it happens here in the West. You know, the East kind of leads the way and then the West, you know, as far as philosophy and things like that. And it's kind of the way it's always been. That's troubling. Because what you'll find in the world and culture is that people just have a sense of being lost, spiritually speaking. Whether they, they don't know or they're anti or whatever, you know, they're just kind of lost. And in their hearts, they're kind of cold and indifferent. Just cold, like, mm, resistant. Which brings a sense of hopelessness. Maybe some of you feel hopeless. Well, the good news is what we're going to talk about in the next few minutes is what will make it possible for people, whether they're in Scotland or America or any country... If they feel lost, they find direction. What we're going to talk about helps people whose hearts have grown cold to warm and open to the love of God through Jesus. And people who are drowning in hopelessness will actually find hope. That's what we're going to be talking about in the next few minutes. And it has so much more to do with what happens in here, not just attending church. Church is not enough. Talked about that last week. If you missed it, you want to go back and catch up on it. But what we realize is that the foundational steps of faith begin within. I want to take you back to the first century and give you a context for this. In the first century, there was a festival, a Jewish festival, going on about 40 days after Jesus had died and risen from the dead and um, ascended to heaven. So the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus had come and gone. And now there's these group, a small group of followers of Jesus. And they're not quite sure what to do. And here comes this festival where worldwide, at least worldwide in that part of the world, as it was known then, Jewish people from all over the known world came to Jerusalem. Here we go. We're at the festival of Pentecost, and something amazing happens there that changed the trajectory of the church. While they were at Pentecost, Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, one of Jesus' inner circle disciples, there was Peter, James, and John, kind of like Jesus' right-hand guys, and they were kind of closer to the action than anybody else. So Peter was one of those guys, and he stood up 
at the festival of Pentecost and he gave a sermon. This is what his sermon was. It's very, very simple, very powerful, convicting and challenging. His sermon was this. All you Jewish people, listen up. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Son of God. He is the Messiah, and you killed him. But God raised him from the dead, and me and James and John and, and all the boys, we, we are witnesses of all these things. That, 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 that's a pretty simple sermon, right? Okay? Listen, you didn't think Jesus was the guy. You didn't think he was the Messiah, but he's the Messiah. He's the Son of God, and you killed him. But here's proof that he is. God raised him, and we're witnesses of these things. And then Peter kind of like summarizes his message with his ending statement. It was just kind of like a mic drop moment for him when he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. How's that for a challenge? Well, at this point, they had a very interesting response. Listen to what they said. When the people heard this, check this out, they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart. It sunk in. They were like, oh, no. And they said to Peter and the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? In other words, they got it. The light came on. They were like, you're right. It all cleared now. It's all easy to see now once we see the whole picture like oh how did we miss this you're right so now what do we do peter what do we do how do we deal with this where do we go what's next this is what peter says repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of jesus christ for the forgiveness of your sins repent and be baptized Repent and be baptized. Let's break that down a second. That word repent, it's one of those Jesus words, one of those churchy words, one of those words that Christians like to throw around a lot. And unfortunately, it's misused and abused. You know, you see it on signs and people wear it on T-shirts and you, you're driving down the road in these little towns and people are standing on the street corner and they're screaming at you, repent! Always gives me the warm, fuzzy feelings when I'm driving through any town, I'll tell you. That makes me feel loved by God, Right? It's, a very, it's actually a very beautiful word. It's just misused. A lot of people think, and unfortunately in a lot of churches, they say the word repent means to turn from your sins. Right? To turn around, to turn from your sins. Repent. Turn from your sins. Well, that sounds right, but it's not. Logically, just first of all, it's not what the word means, but even if it did. Turn from your sins. Here's my question. How many of them? I got a lot. How many of them? 55%? I mean, that's, that's not half bad. That's more than half good. <laughs> 55, 60, 75, 80%? Anybody, anybody? No. He said nobody goes there, right? Because you know what they're implying? All of them. No, wait a second, wait a second. Can I do that? Can I turn from all of my sins? Wait a second. If I could turn from all of my sins, that would make me sinless, which means I would be perfect, which also means then I wouldn't need Jesus. I wouldn't need saving. I wouldn't need a Savior if I was perfect. So logically, it breaks down. And here's the other thing. It's not what the word means. The word repent is the Greek word metanoia, 
which means to change your mind, to change the way you think. So it's beautiful. Actually, Peter standing in front of this Jewish, primarily Jewish audience. Now, there's some non-Jewish people there. There's some Gentiles there as well, but, as well, but the mostly Jewish audience. And he's looking at the Jews and he's saying, here's the deal. You didn't think Jesus was the Messiah. Up until this point, you didn't think he was the one. He was the one. You killed him. You crucified him. God raised him. We're witnesses of this, so you need to change your minds about who you think Jesus is. You need to change your thinking when it comes to Jesus and put your trust in the one and only Messiah, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Repent. Change your mind. Change your thinking. They got it. They got it. They knew exactly what he meant. Then he goes on. He says, and be baptized, which means, and let the world know it. Baptism was the outward expression, the public declaration that you put your trust in Jesus, that you had changed your mind, changed your thinking, that you had repented and said, no, I put my trust in Jesus as the one and only Messiah, Son of God, Savior of the world. And baptism was not a requirement for the forgiveness of sins. The New Testament makes that clear. Time and time and time again, if we had time, I would show you and unpack this for you. But it was just the natural next step, the logical conclusion. When you put your trust in Jesus, you let the world know through baptism. It's the first logical next step. And then he goes on, repent and be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is God's Spirit, to come. And that's what happened just right after this and gave them power. And oh, it's just awesome. And he said, this promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off. You know who that is? You know who the all who are far off? It's me. Just me. No. <laughs> and you too. And anyone who changed their mind about who Jesus is and, and, and put their trust in him. All of us. I love this. And this is what happened as a result. Those who accepted his message, they received his message. They're like, yes. Yes, count me in. Then they were baptized. About 3,000 of them, 3,000 were added to their number that day. A lot of people, can you imagine? All these people internalize this truth. Everybody in this room, everybody watching online, everybody watching at all of our locations, you fall into one or two categories. And it's not like I'm trying to label you or me, but here's the truth. You're either not a follower of Jesus in this moment, or you are a follower of Jesus. And both categories of people have something very important they need to consider as a result of this. Let me begin over here, if you're not a follower of Jesus. First of all, we're so glad you're here. Wow, what a gutsy thing for you to show up at a church. We're so glad you feel comfortable and you feel welcome. We, we hope you have a great time and we hope you are encouraged and challenged and you come back next week and bring another friend with you. I, we're just honored to have you here. We exist for you. But you're not a, you're not a Christian. I, I know you may call yourself a Christian because, you know, your grandma and your great-grandma and, you know, you've always known about Jesus and you know about God and you believe that there is a God and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's great, but... What we mean by Christian is someone who is trusting in Jesus and following Jesus. Trusting and following Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. 
So yeah, yeah, well, that's not me. I, I, I believe about Jesus. I believe stuff about him, you know, and in Christmas, and, you know, that's all, it's a really great story. And, but yeah, that's not me then. Okay, well, listen. I, listen, I know you got your story. I understand. I wish I had time to get to know your story. And I know you probably have good reasons for not being a Christian at this point. I, I'm sure you have very good reasons. And if I knew your reasons, I would agree with you. Yeah, those are pretty hefty reasons for why you've chosen not to put your trust in Jesus. Maybe it's because you've got all these questions that have yet to be answered. You know, what about that? What about this? What ha- you know, why not this? And why did God do this? And why not that? And I'm with you. I've got lots of questions, too. I've got lots of whatabouts. But I have a challenge for you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, here's my challenge. A challenge that you need to consider that you can do, should do, and must do in spite of your reasons, even your good reasons, and in spite of all your unanswered questions. I want to challenge you to respond and do exactly what those people did in the first century, which is receive Jesus and be baptized. Real simple. Because, see, you have no idea what God has gone through. To make this possible for you, it's impossible to exaggerate the love of God. Impossible to exaggerate how much God loves you. And the closest thing we have to seeing how much God loves us is the death of his own son. That's a lot. And he gave his life for your sins to give you new and eternal life, and he invites you to put your trust in him. And when you begin to put your trust in him and you receive him as your savior, embrace him as your savior, that's when your faith steps begin to take hold. That's when the transformation begins to take shape from the inside out. Those foundational moments when the light comes on and you're like, I believe, I believe, and I put my trust in Jesus. He alone is my savior. And then he challenges you to go public with it. Don't keep it to yourself. Don't keep it on the download and say, well, that's personal. Well, sure it is, but it's not private. Following, trusting Jesus is personal, but it was never meant to be private. You go public with it, and that's what the symbol of baptism is for. God is a God of symbols. God loves symbols. The rainbow is a symbol. Baptism is a symbol. It's a symbol, an outward symbol, where you publicly proclaim, I have put my trust in Jesus and I am following him. It's what they did and it's what God has asked us to do as well. I challenge you to put your trust in Jesus, receive him as your Savior, and sign up to publicly declare your faith in baptism. Now, baptism doesn't make you a Christian. What baptism is, it kind of lets everybody know you are following Jesus. It's like a wedding ring. This wedding ring does not make me married. If I lose it this afternoon, I'm still married to a very hurt wife. <laughs> you lost your wedding ring? You know, it's happened to somebody, lots of us, right? No, the wedding ring doesn't make me married. It just lets everybody know I'm off the market. <laughs> right? Your wedding ring just lets everybody know you're, you're taken. It's a symbol. It's like a birthday party. Baptism's like a birthday party. It's a celebration. You're going to get a year older whether you celebrate it or not, right? That's why you stop celebrating it one time. You, you think if you stop celebrating it, then it won't happen. Right? No. You're going to get a year older either way. So let's just celebrate it. That's what baptism is. Celebrating. Celebrating something that has already occurred in here. And around here, we baptize like they baptized in the scriptures, by immersion. We dunk you in water. That's what the word means, and that's exactly how they did it in the scriptures. That's how Jesus was baptized. 
went down into the water, came up out of the water. And I know there's all kinds of different traditions. People are sprinkled, they pour, dip, they sneeze on you, they all kinds of stuff. And, and I'm not saying that's bad, wrong. It's just not the way we do it because it's not the way they did it in the scriptures. We try to follow that example as closely as we can possibly follow it. And it's actually a powerful symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Awesome. That's what this card is for, by the way. If you say, yeah, sign me up, man. I want to do this. I want to put my trust in Jesus, and I really would like to talk to somebody. This card right in front of you, in the seat in front of you, you'll see it says, receive Jesus. That tells you everything you need to know and what you need to do. Put that in one of the tall wooden boxes, and we'll be in contact with you this week. If you want to be baptized on the back of your next step card, just check that box. I want to be baptized. We'll get you signed up and help you do what they did back then. It's what some of you, this is your first steps. Receive Jesus and go public with it in baptism. Now, everybody else who are followers of Jesus, listen up very carefully. I want to talk to you for the last few moments. The challenge I think we find ourselves with as followers of Jesus is the fact that following Jesus for a lot of us has become so normal. It's just who we are, it's just what we do, and we don't even really think about it anymore. We just kind of do it. We do the things. We do all the things. All the Christian things. It's almost become assumed, routine. And we've lost the wonder and the excitement and the passion that we had when we took those first steps. When we took those first steps of putting our trust in Jesus and publicly proclaiming it, I want to challenge you to do something. While not followers of Jesus, challenging you to respond by receiving Jesus and being baptized, for those of you that are Christians, you're following Jesus. Yeah, you know if you are to die right now, you'd go to heaven. And that's great, but I want to challenge you with something. I want you to remember I want you to remember, I want you to go back, I want you to go back to those first steps. Where understanding what it meant that Jesus is your Savior and your sins are forgiven. That Jesus is your Savior and you will never be the same. You will never be the same, nothing will ever be the same again. That you've lost that excitement, you've lost that passion. Go back and remember what it was like to stand in front of family and friends and publicly declare your faith in baptism. And if you're a Christian and you haven't taken that step, you need to take that step and go public. Okay, I know it's personal, but it's not private. It's not private, never private. But maybe you've forgotten what that was like. Remember, reclaim the awe and the wonder of that simple decision and the public declaration. Because see, here's the deal. I see it all the time as Christians. We've overcomplicated what it means to follow Jesus. We've overcomplicated it. It's really, really simple. It's not always easy. Sometimes it's actually very, very difficult to follow Jesus. But it's always very, very simple. Sometimes simple things are hard to do, right? Like say I'm sorry, admit you're a jerk. You know, those are simple things. Hard to do sometimes, right? They're very, very simple. You know what following Jesus really is about? Trusting and pledging your allegiance to Jesus in all of life. 
in all of life. You haven't compartmentalized life and say, yeah, I do the Jesus thing on Sunday. I do my thing Monday through Friday, and I do something else on Saturday. No, it's, it's all of life. Every part of life is affected. It's just simple trust and allegiance to Jesus. Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my, my God, and I follow him, period. Man, what, what would happen if we came back to that? When we first arrived in Scotland, my wife Donna and I first got there, the very, very first thing we did the first day is they wanted us to do a spiritual history tour. Now, at first, I got to admit, I was just like, you want me to do what? That sounds boring, right? Spiritual history tour. And I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a spiritual history. I've had all that. I'm like, ah, I had all those classes. Mm, I didn't know this. Transformational. And before we had our meetings and before we started planning about planting new churches and all those kinds of things in Edinburgh, we did this tour where they took us to a church that was built, one of the newer churches in the city. It was built in 1541. Imagine that. We were sitting there, and they started talking to us about what happened in this church. You see, in the 1600s, the king was the head of the church. The king, remember that. Remember if you remember this from, from school. The king of Scotland, and, and even the king of England, and sometimes they were the same person. We'll talk about that in a second. Declared themselves the king of, I mean, the head of the church. Not just the authority head as far as, yeah, I'm going to call the organizational shots. Not just politically, but spiritually. They elevated themselves above Jesus as the head of the church. You answer to me. I call the shots for the direction of the spiritual establishment. There were a group of people that said, man, this is not right. It's not, it's not what the scriptures teach. I mean, I mean, we honor, we want to honor the king, and we're talking about guys like King James VI of Scotland, who was also at the same time King James I of England. That's kind of weird. Which is also the King James of the Bible, and that's an interesting discussion. And his two sons, Charles I and Charles II, two of the most bloodthirsty tyrants in England's history. During their reign, the king is the head of the church. And the king wanted you to declare, God save the king, God save the king, God save the king. Now we hear that and we go, oh, it's like you're praying for the king. No, 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 no. To declare God save the king was to say the king is the head of the church, not Jesus. There was a group of people they got together and said, this is not right. We can't teach our children this. This is not true. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is our Savior. The king may be our leader, but Jesus is our Lord. And our allegiance is to Jesus first. Well, that didn't sit well with the king. So there was this contention. This group of people got together and they wrote up a covenant. That's why they were called, and you can look it up and read all about it, the covenanters. The covenanters. They wrote up a covenant. I took a picture of this covenant. You can hardly see it. From the early 1600s, they wrote their allegiance to Jesus, and then they signed their names, and, and time and light has faded this, and it has not been kept well. Because like I said, like Scotland, they're non. They don't even know this. People of Scotland, they, they don't know about this. It's, it's been way too long, and they've forgotten all of this stuff. It doesn't mean anything to most everybody there. And so they signed their names to this, and by doing so, they signed their death warrant. As the king came to them, 
and said, you need to recant. All you got to do is instead say, God saved the king. I know you're putting your, that's fine. If you guys want to go to church, that's fine. All that kind of stuff. But the king is the head of the church and not Jesus. Say, God saved the king and, and just sign here that you were wrong and that you take all that back and we'll leave you alone and let you live your lives. But if you do not recant, you are signing your death warrant. And these covenanters, these husbands and wives and moms and dads and men and women with their children looked at each other and said, how can we deny what is so true? We have chosen to trust and follow Jesus. He is ultimately our king. And so we're sitting in this church. They took us out of this church, and they had us walk the path that the covenanters walked. They walked down the stairs, through a couple alleys, into this area called the Grass Market. At the Grass Market, still today, it's a hub of economic just activity, stores, hotels, everything. It was just kind of the hub in the grass market. They took them to a spot in the grass market. Matter of fact, I took a picture of the spot. There's a small little monument there. It's very short. Most people don't even know it's there. They have no idea what it is. They're sitting on it, walking on it, everything. They have no idea of this inscription. But on this spot, these covenanters, thousands of them, were burned at the stake, hanged until they were dead. Why? Because they said, Jesus, above all else, is my Savior. Jesus is my King first. And they killed them. We're standing there. I was just looking at that. And I took the picture and somebody came up to me and said, hey, you want to you wanna stand there and I'll take your picture? And I was like, no, no, I'm, I'm good. And later I told Donna, my wife, I said, I'm, I'm not worthy to have my picture taken in a spot like this. I'm so soft. See, I'm not, I'm not telling you this to make you feel guilty, okay? I just want you to think. I want you to think. This is real, okay? This is not movie stuff. This happened. See, we've made Jesus following, we've made following Jesus very, very tame in our modern American culture. Very tame. Almost anemic almost anemic, where it's very weak following Jesus. We've made following Jesus about, you know, I want to follow Jesus because I want God to bless me, right? And I want to be happy. I want to have joy. I don't want to be fulfilled. And I want to go to heaven. And all of that's good and all of it's true. But that's not why they chose to follow Jesus. That wasn't even an option. Having a comfortable life, having a happy life, having a blessed life, living your best life now, having a blessed life was not even an option. By saying, I trust and follow Jesus, they were signing their death warrants. And yet thousands and thousands did. For them, following Jesus was not about making their life more comfortable here and now. Not about making their life better now. It was about them laying their one and only life down for the one who gave his one and only life for them. They were captivated by the love of Jesus. Now here's the deal. This is not about guilt. You are probably not going to be asked to die for Jesus today. I don't think anybody is going to be approached and say it's Jesus or death. If you choose Jesus, you die. No, that's probably not going to happen. Now that happens in the world. It doesn't get much press, but it happens. 
happens a lot more than you would think. And, and maybe one day it happens here. I don't know. I hope not. I hope not. So, so I know this today. You're probably not going to be asked to die for Jesus. But here's the question. Would you live for him? How about that? Oh, yeah, yeah, man. I'm good with that. I'm down with that. Wait, 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 wait. Do you understand what that means? Remember, 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 follower of Jesus. Remember what this is all about. It's about living your life in allegiance to the Son of God. And that changes everything. And that affects everything. It's not about you having your life just the way you want it. And then on Sunday, you know, I'm going to go worship Jesus so my life stays like I want it. It's you being willing to lay it all down for the one who gave his life for you. Are you willing to live for the one who died for you? Are you willing to live for what other people just like you died for? we got to remember what this is about. In fact, before Jesus was crucified, the night, the night before, he had dinner with his closest followers. And that dinner was all about them remembering. He gave them another symbol. It's called communion. Another symbol to help them remember. And we're going to experience this together in the next few moments. To help us remember. Jesus said, I'm going to give you some bread. And this bread represents the body that I'm going to sacrifice for you. And I want you to eat it and remember what I've done for you. Never forget it. And I want you to drink this juice or this fruit of the vine. And when you drink this, I want you to know it symbolizes my blood. And I want you to never forget, never forget, never forget what I've done for you. Never. Always remember. Always do this in remembrance of me. That's what Jesus told them. And then he told us to continue to do this. So we're going to. Here's a great opportunity, Christian, for you to remember. Reclaim the passion. Reclaim the focus of what this is all about and why. I mean, are you willing to live for what Jesus and others have died for? I hope so. And for those of you that are not followers of Jesus, this is a perfect opportunity for you to nail this down. Maybe you pull that card out and you spend some time filling it out and you tell God, I'm in. I want to trust and follow Jesus from this moment on and go public with it as soon as I can and let the world know through baptism. Let me pray for you as we prepare our hearts for communion. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word and what happened in that first century when Peter so boldly declared the good news of Jesus Christ and how we are connected to it. Father, thank you for the story, the true story of men and women who made a covenant together to honor the covenant you made for us. That you gave yourself so that we could be forgiven and we could be saved. And all you ask us to do is to trust and follow in return. So, Father, help me to not live an anemic assumed, cold, routine life. May I remember, may I remember and never forget what you did for me. And may it fill me with passion and purpose. And for everyone here that's taking that first step for the very first time, trusting you as Savior, may they know that they are forgiven. May they know that you are going to be giving them new and eternal life as they trust you 
and they learn what it means to follow you. We remember, we respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's share communion together.